This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with my friend and colleague, Shannon Weston, who is an Associate Professor here in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, and today we're going to speak about a prospective Phase two trial of uh, levonorgestrel IUD, the non-surgical appro approach for complex atypical hyperplasia, an early stage endometrial cancer that was uh, recently published in the uh, American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So welcome, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me, Pedro. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Well, thank you once again for your time and uh, for discussing this really important study uh, with us. Uh, obviously, completing these studies are always uh, a challenge. So congratulations uh, to you and the, and the team. So I wanted to first start um, asking you, you know, obviously we know that the standard treatment for complex atypical hyperplasia or early endometrial cancer remains a hysterectomy. However, obviously a number of patients we know that are interested in future fertility or there's a number that have quite a number of comorbidities um, and obviously request a conservative management or we recommend a conservative management. Um, there seems to be a lot of retrospective data on this topic. Um, so why now? Why did you uh, perform uh, this study? Yeah, you know, <laughs> this study, we started it a long time ago <laughs> because we really felt like it was very important to obtain some prospective data to support it. Because we all know that with retrospective data, a lot of times you report your successes and maybe don't report as much of your failures. So we really wanted to get a very clear idea of when this works, who it works for, um, and is this an appropriate approach. And you're right, the, the proportion of patients that are asking for this is growing because we're seeing not only younger women uh, getting endometrial cancer or developing um, hyperplasia with atypia, but we're also seeing more elderly women that maybe have multiple medical comorbidities for whom surgery is very dangerous or not ideal. So, um, so certainly this population is there and we wanted to really thoughtfully um, determine what's the right approach for them. Great. And, and Shannon, one, one thing is that, you know, I think that for many institutions, I think, including ours, you know, the IUD has sort of become like the standard, but there are a number of patients that are still undergoing treatment with like progestational agents and, uh, and, and, you know, rather than the IUD. So I was wondering why should there be a switch to the IUD as a, as a standard approach? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. I think one is compliance. It's just so much easier. Once that intrauterine device is in place, there's really not much else the patient has to do except for, you know, show up for her uh, biopsies and assessments to ensure that the response is adequate. You know, I think that we've all taken care of these patients that are on, say, medroxyprogesterone acetate or uh, megastrol acetate, and they have a lot of weight gain. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge issue, no pun intended, because many of these women are heavy. That's what led to them developing these aberrations. And mm -hmm. so although, you know, weight gain, say five to 10% isn't necessarily deadly, that could be a huge, a huge problem for a patient who's already heavy and already has other medical issues. And so that's one of the major reasons I'd say compliance and trying to avoid the, um, the weight gain. And then also you can see other, uh, uh, adverse events from just taking those oral agents like nausea and vomiting and liver issues. And so the levonorgestrel IUD seems to have a better adverse event profile. Yeah, totally. Uh, makes sense. 
Um, and uh, Shannon, what what are the guidelines telling us today? I mean, the, the NCCN guidelines, when you talk about conservative management of early endometrial cancer, what are sort of like the rules? Yeah, I think the, the major issues are you want to make sure that this is truly early stage. We do not want to be utilizing uterine conserving therapy in somebody that um, has uh, evidence of invasion on um, MRI or ultrasound or evidence of metastatic disease. Um, we really want the patients to have a well-differentiated or grade one endometrial cancer or, like we said, the hyperplasia with atypia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, they have to be willing to return and to have pretty consistent um, and regular assessments of the endometrium. And that typically is done with either endometrial biopsy or dilation and curatage. So you need somebody that's going to be compliant with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with all those things being considered, um, the NCCN does support utilizing some type of continuous progesterone-based therapy. Uh, again, whether that's oral or the intrauterine device, it's left open. Um, and so really what our study did, you know, that's been something that's been listed in the compendium, but the, again, there weren't a lot of prospective data to support it. So we were happy to help kind of validate that NCCN um, compendium re- uh, recommendation. Yeah. So then now let's get on to your, your study, that prospective phase two trial. What was the primary objective of the study? Sure. The the primary objective was to look at response. And specifically, we were looking at um, the efficacy and pathologic response rate at 12 months. And this was a pretty aggressive timeline. I think most of us have seen that you can see um, early response to to these agents, but we wanted it to be a persistent, a continued response. And Mm -hmm. so we marked it as that 12-month endpoint, and we wanted to see, you know, either... uh, complete resolution of cancer and complete resolution of any atypia um, in regards to the hyperplasia. Yeah, it makes sense. And you're absolutely right. Uh, A lot of times we we just record the response at the first evaluation or many studies have recorded at the first or second evaluation. So that's that's an excellent point. And, And what about the secondary endpoints? Yeah, so we really wanted to cover what is important to to physicians and what's important to patients. So we looked at um, toxicity, we looked at quality of life, and then we also sought to really explore any ways to predict which patients get benefit. So were there any predictors of resistance to this therapy um, or conversely, anything associated with uh, response to therapy? Yeah. And um, your your inclusion criteria were patients. Uh, tell tell us a little bit more about who was a candidate for the study. Sure, we tried to keep it pretty broad. We wanted it to be something that you know uh, investigators or or providers in their in their clinic could you know look at this study and say, okay, this is my population. So mm-hmm. um, we allowed any patient that had a typical hyperplasia. Now, for, for endometrioid, um, endometrial cancer, we were a little bit more strict. It had to be grade one, and they had to have one of the following, either uh, morbid obesity, multiple medical comorbidities, or um, a desire for future fertility. And the reason we did that is because, you know, we were treating this as an investigational agent, and we wanted to make sure that the patients that were going on were, um, were the right population, and we weren't going to be putting anybody at risk. Yeah, that sounds completely... Uh, very reasonable. Um, now, you mentioned that there were some contraindications to IUD. Um, I was wondering if you could just outline what do you consider a contraindication to an IUD? 
Yeah, so we utilized um, the prescribing information pretty pretty tightly as far as what does um, what does the uh, company that makes the intrauterine device really guide us to say. So of course, patients could not be pregnant, so we had to check a pregnancy test. Um, any acute pelvic infection. Now we, in the, as part of the study, did do you know gonorrhea chlamydia assessment for for people out in kind of regular practice. I think you know you you have to know your patient population and obviously assess the patient's symptoms. I don't think it's necessarily, it's, it's gotten a little bit more flexible of, as whether or not we really need to check those every time we put an IUD in. And so people can kind of use their, um, their own clinical judgment. And then the last thing really, I, I think in clinical practice that we, we see quite a bit of is any structural uterine abnormality. And w- what does that mean? It's, it's deliberately meant pretty broadly, but essentially you, you, if you have somebody that has, say, has a bicornuate uterus or has mm-hmm. multiple intrauterine fibroids, it can be very hard to even have the IUD stay in place, right? So you'll see a lot of expulsions with that patient population. So what I tell people in practice is it's not an absolute contraindication, but if you know your patient has a uterine anomaly of some kind, you just need to counsel her appropriately that her IUD may not remain in situ. Right. And then now, one of the things that often is uh, as a point of criticism in um, a number of studies is how you define your, your endpoint. So like the complete response or, or the partial response. In this study, how did you define complete and partial response? Yeah, we tried to use what we felt like people used in practice. And so for complete response, the definition depended on what their um, pre or pre-treatment diagnosis was. So for patients with um, atypical hyperplasia, a complete response was defined as hyperplasia without atypia or more preferably, completely normal endometrium. And I would note that the majority of patients who had a complete response from hyperplasia did have complete clearance Mm -hmm. of any evidence of hyperplasia. But we know that atypia is the most critical piece. Now, for patients with um, endometrial cancer, that's where complete response, obviously, again, very similar to hyperplasia, that we want clearance of the cancer, but also clearance of that atypia from the hyperplasia. But we also allowed for what's called a partial response in this population. And so if we had a patient that had a grade one endometrial cancer and subsequently had evidence of only atypical hyperplasia, that was considered a partial response Mm -hmm. um, in this study. Okay. And um, how did you evaluate the patients? Uh, Either was it by biopsy or DNC? And how often did you evaluate them? Yeah, so we allowed for, you know, upfront when they went on to the study, they had to have a dilation and curatage. And that was just really, again, with an overabundance of caution, wanting to avoid enrolling any patient with higher grade um, than grade one. But on the study, they had evaluations every three months and they were endometrial biopsies. Um, we did have a few patients that were unable to tolerate endometrial biopsy, say in the clinic due to discomfort. We were able to um, perform those endometrial biopsies in the operating room. Dilation and curatage with an IUD in situ is a little bit more difficult. It's hard to keep that IUD. And as you know, these devices aren't you know, free. And so we didn't want to have to keep pulling out the IUD, doing a DNC and replacing a new one. And so that's why we kind of proceeded with um, an endometrial biopsy at this point. Okay. So then now the next question, of course, this is a, a Shannon Weston study. So there's going to be translational components. So. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you were looking at uh, with the translational studies? 
Sure. I mean, we we started with some, you know, kind of simple um, assessments specifically looking at, you know, progesterone receptor and measures of proliferation, specifically KI-67, just to see specifically were there a baseline level of expression that correlated to response to therapy or did we see a change in protein expression between the initial baseline um, tissue and after three months of treatment? Trying to understand like if we see a specific change, okay, that's very relevant and that is associated with response or Mm -hmm. if we see, you know, don't see a change that's associated with resistance. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to kind of some of those um, straight, more straightforward, we did do some kind of really, I think, really cool um, novel stuff where we're looking at the so-called estrogen-induced genes, which are genes that we identified in um, the endometrium of women treated with estrogen for a certain period of time. And we noticed that if they were treated with estrogen, they had upregulation of these genes. And so we thought that might be relevant in endometrial cancer and in hyperplasia. And we previously saw that in a retrospective study. We found they did. They were very well associated with hyperplasia and the development of cancer. So we wanted to see if there were changes in these genes that could potentially be, again, associated to response to progesterone. Wow, fantastic. So now, obviously, then um, getting on to the results of the study, what were your main findings? And I was wondering also if you can just also tell us what percentage of the entire study were patients who had complex atypical hyperplasia versus endometrial cancer? Sure. So um, amongst the group, 63% had um, uh, atypical hyperplasia and uh, about 37% or so had um, endometrial hyperplasia or endometrial cancer. Excuse Mm -hmm. me. Now, what we found was overall response rate in the entire cohort is about 83%. So very much in line um, with some of the data that we've seen out of retrospective studies and small prospective studies. Now, Interestingly, you know, we've often kind of put these two, um, and we always, we do, we often put these two subtypes together. We put early um, and atypical hyperplasia and grade one cancer together mm-hmm. in these trials because they can be hard to identify pathologically, and there's often quite a bit of overlap. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in our pathologist's hands, we did see a difference in response rate between the two groups with the patients with hyperplasia with atypia achieving about a 91% response rate versus the patients with endometrial. Uh, endometrioid cancer achieving about a 67% response rate. Mm -hmm. Now, I will note, though, that um, in addition to the, in the the patients with endometrial cancer that had a 67% response rate, we had another 13% who had prolonged stable disease at 12 months. Mm -hmm. And as you and I both know, if you have a patient that you do not want to take to the operating room, stabilizing her disease as in as a grade one, Mm -hmm. it certainly could be considered a success. And so I think it's interesting to look at the number of patients who had just progression. And that was five patients out of the entire cohort. So only five patients had disease progression on the IUD. And I think that's a really important number. Yeah, very interesting. And then uh, I noticed also that, um, you know, obviously one usually uh, measures or sees a response at three months. But in this study, I understand you also saw responses later. Uh, and again, bringing us back to the point of the 12 months and, and responses at 12 months. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, those late responses? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think, you know, similar to other studies, we did see the the predominant timeline for response really was within that first three months. I think it was something like 
36 patients out of the 47 evaluable had their response early like that. Mm-hmm. But at, you know, at the six month time point, we saw three more at the nine month time point, we got, we saw two more. Um, and at the 12 month time point, we even had one patient that turned to a response after multiple months of prolonged stable disease. And so I think it shows you that in the right patient with good follow-up, you can really extend out that time on the IUD as long as you're not seeing progressive disease. Now, we did see some patients, four patients had relapse of disease after initial response. The majority of those patients had an endo- had endometrial cancers that had um, their IUD, you know, kind of removed after um, a certain period of time or, you know, had a little bit of loss of follow-up and then came back and had some uh, evidence of disease again. You know, it's always hard to know did that mean that it truly was cleared and then recurred or was it more sampling, you know, that maybe there was something still residual there? Hard to know, but it's low numbers. So you can feel pretty reassured that when you have uh, evidence of benefit on your endometrial biopsy, you can really trust it. Yeah. And, um, you know, certainly, obviously, on a prospective study, one often sees um a higher rate of adverse events than in the retrospective studies. Um, tell us about the adverse events that you recorded uh, on the IUD uh, in this study. Yeah, it was, we were really pleased. I think it was very, very we had minimal adverse events that were really um, identified. The, the majority of what we saw were some type of irregularity in vaginal bleeding. Um, you know, that was generally could be things like spotting mm-hmm. or even some patients that had a little bit of heavy bleeding. Uh, and the, But the majority of this really did resolve after about three months. Um, we also saw some patients with breast tenderness or abdominal pain, um, and one or two patients that had some weight gain. Mm-hmm. But but overall, this was very all quite self limited, and and most patients felt better um, with the IUD. I, I would note that our one other important thing is we didn't have any kind of severe adverse events on this mm-hmm. study, mm-hmm. so we had no uterine perforations, we had no severe pelvic infections. Mm-hmm. So that was also very reassuring that you know overall these were more low-grade um, adverse events. Yeah, it's relatively safe then. Um, and, um, you know, obviously one of the things that often comes up uh, in, in the patients will ask and we wonder, are there any predictors uh, of the responders versus the non-responders? And I was wondering if you were able to determine that uh, from the study, did the translational studies help you in any way with this uh, question? Yeah, so, you know, we were really interested in both kind of pieces, the clinical predictors as well as the translational. And there had been other studies, again, mostly retrospective, looking at things like age and patient weight or BMI and the Mm -hmm. maximum uterine dimension. Unfortunately, those really were not associated with um, response, although I will note that our overall BMI was very heavy. Um, so it's hard to know if that kind of skewed those data because there are several studies that have shown that a higher BMI may be associated with non-response. And, you know, in looking at our numbers, there's definitely a difference. Like our BMI and the non-responders was something around 51 versus in the responders, it was 43. So you're seeing a difference, but again, it was such a higher overall median BMI in our population that I, I just don't know if we were able to tease out that. 
Now, but we were able to see some kind of cool things that even can be clinically utilized right away. So one of the things that we um, realized, I had a wonderful pathologist that was working with me on this named Russell Broadus, who you know very well, Pedro. And um, when we, when I first pitched this trial, he was like, you know, I feel like if you see progesterone effect in the tissue, you can really feel good that you're going to have a patient that has response to therapy. And so we had our pathologist start looking at this so-called exogenous progesterone effect, which are just some simple changes that the pathologist can see maybe at the three-month time point and say, yeah, there's definitely progesterone effect here or there is total lack. And what we found for, um, in at least in our study, was that in patients that had no evidence of exogenous progesterone effect, that the chance of non-response was much, much higher. So that, to me, was really an exciting finding because that's not something you need to do some, you know, crazy genetic analysis. That's like, look in the microscope and you know what, like it's not there. So I I think that was one of one of our really significant findings that made us um, definitely excited to kind of move that forward and continue to explore that. And I hope other um, investigators that are doing these kind of studies will also um, explore that as well. Now, we did have, you know, small numbers for the translational studies, and this is very, very consistent with what we see in these types of studies. You think about an endometrial biopsy and the amount of tissue that you can get from that. It's not a ton of, a ton of um, tissue in order to do a lot of different translational assessments. With that being said, we started to see some really interesting trends, specifically around um, the KI-67 protein expression. For those patients that had high levels of KI-67 or high levels of proliferation at baseline, so even before they got treated, that was associated with um, higher levels of non-response. And so that was kind of an interesting finding. And then we started to see some of the estrogen-regulated genes kind of being either up-regulated or having lack of change um, at that three-month time point. So all very exploratory, too uh, too soon to really put into clinical um, practice, but definitely something that we're going to explore further in our upcoming or ongoing um, IUD trial. Yeah, very exciting. And of course, as, as usual, Russell brought us his right. <laughs> yep, <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> so now I know you also did a quality of life uh, assessment, uh, and I was wondering if you could just share with us some of those results. Yeah, you know, I think we we did a very straightforward quality of life assessment. We did the SF36. Um, and what we found was overall, the patients that um, that had the IUD saw improvement in health status really across all the different, you know, scales. They look at physical and mental and vitality, um, physical function, all of these types of things. Um, and pain was improved. So, you know, we wanted to see, you know, did we see any worsening adverse events or worsening reports of how they were physically or mentally feeling? And we did not see that. We saw the opposite. Now, we tried to start looking at the difference between responders to therapy and non-responders. And there was started to be a suggestion of perhaps that um, patients with response to therapy felt had better physical function and lower pain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was, again, small numbers, so hard to kind of say, um, you know, if that's a, a significant finding, but certainly very reassuring that it didn't worsen quality of life. Yeah. Now, Shannon, uh, so, some of the questions that I, that I will ask you uh, now are from our fellows in the International Journal. Um, oh, great. And uh, this one uh, comes from... Uh, uh, Argentina, uh, after 12 months treatment, uh, if the patient wants to keep the IUD, 
How often do you suggest an endometrial biopsy? This is from Cecilia Darin. Ah, that's a, well, it's a great question. And we talk about this all the time. Um, you know, if we've had clearance of disease, um, I think after a year, I feel comfortable in pushing out to every six months. Um, and what I do is we counsel the patients to say, you know, look, if you have an increase in bleeding or a change in status, please come back sooner. Um, but we can feel pretty confident that once we've had evidence that there's been disease response, that you can extend that timeline out um, a little farther. Right. Um, this one is from Australia, Emma. Um, and uh, do you think that in women with large BMI and high KI67, for example, she writes, we should be advocating for interventions such as weight loss surgery as a priority? Uh, Emma, she's a physician after my own heart. I think that that is a huge opportunity. And our colleague, uh, Dr. Obermeyer, tried to look at weight loss strategies, not surgery, but other weight loss strategies in addition to the IUD um, in his uh, prospective FEM trial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately, I think it's so hard to utilize just general weight loss and exercise strategies and see a difference for these patients. So I personally would love to get these patients involved in a bariatric surgery trial, but as you can well be, <laughs> can imagine, trying to finagle that type of trial and design and finance that type of trial has not been the easiest thing. So I definitely think that on our, you know, in our own practices, you know, really working with patients to, to um, find appropriate weight loss strategies, including bariatric surgery, makes a lot of sense to try to help that uh, patient respond better to therapy. Great. Uh, next question is from Eric Estrada from Guatemala. Uh, he says, you postulate that this study led to the development of the LEVER trial. Uh, do you consider that the addition of anti-estrogen and mTOR therapy could be the next step in these patients uh, we consider non-responders? Yes, I hope so. You know, so what we thought we found in some early studies was that in patients with um, non-response to therapy, there was higher evidence of activation of the PI3 kinase mTOR pathway. And so what we're hoping is um, that if we can shut that pathway down, these patients that don't um, reliably or naturally respond to progesterone will have better outcomes. So that is what we're trying to do in that ongoing study um, is really identify patients that are Uh, resistant um, to progesterone and then randomize them and add the Everlimus, the mTOR inhibitor, to see if we can get better results. Fantastic. Um, and uh, Shannon, this one is from Natalia Rodriguez uh, from Spain. Uh, she uh, asks, in cases uh, with fertility preservation after the 12 months of complete response, how long do you consider to wait for attempting uh, pregnancy And how should that surveillance be? Yeah, I think for it really depends on your patient. Um, if she's ready to, to attempt to achieve pregnancy, we try to do it right away. I will say, and I don't think I mentioned this earlier, we do try to get our oncofertility team involved very early with the patients that do um, want fertility sparing options because we want to make sure everything else is kind of where it needs to be so that when we clear this hyperplasia or clear this cancer, that if they want to get pregnant, that they can and we don't have limitations because of, say, you know, um, ovarian failure or something mm -hmm. like that. And so once the patient is ready, then we take the IUD out and we get that patient in with our, you know, infertility specialist to work out whatever they need <laughs> to mm -hmm. get pregnant. 
But we do, if I take away the IUD, if we're not giving any progesterone, I will put them on a three month schedule for, um, for endometrial assessment, because, you know, you've taken away that treatment and likely some of the risk factors still exist. And so you want to make sure you don't see a recurrence um, or relapse of uh, the disease. Yeah, that's a really important point. And uh, the last question from the fellow Sarah Nasser from uh, Germany. Uh, would you also recommend this approach to patients with known Lynch or hereditary endometrial cancer as long as it is a grade one? It's a great question because often these women that have Lynch syndrome are diagnosed at an early age and perhaps want fertility. So the answer is yes, um, but you have to be cautious, of course. And for these patients, you know, if you can get them to no evidence of disease, you hopefully can get them to achieve pregnancy if that's their goal, then you're going to still want to do a hysterectomy at some point, right? Because that's the definitive. Our own Kathleen Schmeler showed very clearly that for women with Lynch syndrome, that hysterectomy is the definitive way to avoid um, developing endometrial cancer in the future. And so for that patient population, we, we use a very patient centered strategy where we try to get them to achieve whatever goals they're trying to achieve. And then we do the, the, uh, needed, um, hysterectomy. Great. So then now Shannon, I, um, this last question is, uh, back from me. Um, I wanted to ask you, obviously, Uh, the study targeted patients with um, atypical hyperplasia and endometrial cancer grade one. But it is not uncommon that we do see that patient that comes to us, and we're often discussing these patients in our tumor board, um, that has a grade two with, uh, with no invasion by MRI. Um, in your practice, do you think it's okay to treat those patients with an IUD as well? You know, I think obviously the standard of care is hysterectomy for these patients, but yes, I, we will consider this as an option for those patients with careful counseling. Um, we had our a retrospective study um, that was uh, reported a couple of years ago now in um, the Green Journal that had a, a small number of patients, I think eight patients that had grade two, and we saw equivalent outcomes of for those patients as we did in grade one. And you're right, they were non-invasive, right? No evidence of disease out, you know, either into the, the mitrium or outside of the uterus. So it's a very specific population. Um, I'll also note that we are including these patients in the ongoing uh, lever study. Again, very strict basically grade two arising in complex um, atypical hyperplasia. So really trying to select for that foci or that small amount of grade two to see if we can clear that. But, you know, outside of trial, I, I do for an appropriately motivated patient, I would consider an IUD as long as she understands exactly the risks and potential benefits. Great. Well, Shannon, thank you so, so much. I, uh, I, I, Couldn't tell you how, how proud I am to be uh, one of your colleagues. Um, I want to thank you for the uh, contributions you have made and continue to make with uh, to gynecologic oncology. And also, congratulations on completing a prospective trial. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you. I am so honored to call you my colleague. And I will do this podcast anytime you want me to. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so, so much. Take care.